This morning, um, it's going it's to seem a little weird, especially if you're new to our church. So we're in, uh, we're in a tight spot as a church right now. We've got, um, we've got some disunity. We've got some fighting. We've got some problems. We've got some people pulling themselves away from the church. We've got things that are tearing people down, uh, gossip and rumors and uh, untrue statements and attacking each other. And so what we're doing is uh, we're just going to try to be honest with this. And we're going to pause our series on Acts. And we're going to do a short series on the topic of church discipline. Now, you guys got maybe different things in your minds about that. And maybe you're feeling nervous. I hope that you will uh, just relax. This is going to be, uh, in my hope, a very encouraging Sunday for us. We're in a tough spot, but God is still working in our church. I'm thankful that some of you here today are here to encourage us. That really warms my heart. I will say this, even those of us who are here, we are not alone in this. There are currently people on three different continents, at least four countries, at least nine states and provinces, praying for our church. Why? Because God loves our church. And God's people respond to his love for our church by praying for our church in love. What kind of church will we be? Will we surrender to sin? Will we fall to lies or gossip or slander, bitterness, anger? Will we try to fix ourselves with our own strategies and our own strengths? I am committed to leading this congregation in the paths that God has laid out for us in his word. We do not have to guess what do we do when hard things happen. When people are upset with us at personal levels or corporate levels or whatever. When when you're not unified with a brother or sister in Christ, what do you do? God doesn't leave us to guess. He provides us paths forward in his word. So I want us to humbly come before him and his word this morning and choose to submit ourselves to what he has said. We say, Lord, what should we do? How should we live? How should we talk with each other? How should we deal with hurt and sin and broken relationships and all the other challenges that we have? So, Please, church, join me in prayer now as we submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God. Lord, we we are your people, and we we take comfort and rest and joy in that. And we are are currently a, a wounded group of people. And we ask that you would you'd be healing, be binding up the the brokenhearted, that you would be comforting those who are sad and and weary, mourning, hurt, angry, that you would work in us, that we would come out the other side of our challenges as a church that is stronger, more conformed to the image of Christ, and more capable of achieving the mission that you've given us here in Versailles and around the world. And so we yield ourselves now in this time. We ask that you would work through your word, that you would 
use these words of life to, to grow the life of Christ in us. In Jesus' name, amen. I've titled this short sermon, sermon series, Church Discipline, the Beauty of Determined Love. When we think about discipline, we kind of naturally think about the negative side of that. And it is my hope that throughout this series, you will see how the concept of discipline and the concept of love, whether we're talking about God's discipline for us, our discipline for our kids, or for each other, they, they cannot be separated from each other. Love and discipline go together. Notice the familiarity of the word discipline, the similarity to the word disciple. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you must be disciplined in your walk with him. Whether you're disciplining yourself or God is disciplining you, God's using others to discipline you. To be a disciple is to be disciplined by our Heavenly Father. It is a good thing. When we talk about church discipline, if this is a topic that's familiar to you, you may be thinking, are we talking about shunning someone, excommunicating someone, breaking off relationships, I'm never going to talk to you again, or publicly shaming them? That is not what we are talking about, and especially today, that is not what we're talking about. Today, we're going to talk about discipline in both a positive and a negative sense. We tend to think of it as negative. Much discipline is actually very positive. We can think of positive discipline as formative discipline. It forms us into who we are to be. Corrective discipline may be that negative side of things where we are corrected. But formative discipline is, is like the stakes that hold the young tree so that no matter how much the wind blows, that tree can grow straight. It's held up. It's supported. It's formed. It's disciplined by the stakes. Or we might think of a guardrail on a scenic overlook. So, Matthew, let's go to the first scenic overlook picture. Oh, there's our tree, tree with the stake. Let's go to the next one. So this is, uh, this is a place I was last fall. This is an overlook that's uh, pretty easy to get to. It's just a couple mile level hike out to it. But then if you were to leave this overlook and go down into the Beaver Creek wilderness of Kentucky, you leave civilization behind. There's no cell phone service. There's no roads. There's no people, for the most part, down there bears and trees. That's, that's about it. That guardrail is there so that you don't fall off the cliff that's on the other side of the guardrail, right? It's, it's a form of formative discipline. It's holding us into that safe place. Now, guardrails are a blessing because if you go to this next picture, so they, get, they allow you to take selfies. So this is in the Red River Gorge in Kentucky. And if you've got a guardrail behind you, you can just kind of back up to it and you don't have to pay attention to where your feet are going and you're not worried about falling to your doom off the back of the cliff, right? All right, let's go to the next picture. We were up in uh, Michigan this fall visiting our daughter Emily. And uh, there's a lighthouse near Silver Lake, Michigan you can go up into. Most lighthouses you can't go up into. This is one you can go up to. And of course, at the top of the lighthouse, there's a railing around the whole thing so that you do not fall off. It is a form of formative positive discipline. And just to make you a little jealous, here's the view from the top of the lighthouse. It'd be nice to be there right now, except it'd be all frozen and icebergy right now. We could think of formative discipline in 
is a parenting idea that comes from to, from us, uh, to us from Proverbs 22, 6, the idea of training the child. You train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, that is not a guarantee. You can't say, if I train my child in exactly the right way, they are guaranteed to walk in the ways of God. If you try to read through the book of Proverbs as though these are a whole bunch of 100% do this, then you get this, guarantees, you're going to end up with some pretty big disappointments. But God has structured the world and designed the family in such a way that in general, if you if you train up your children in the ways of God, there's a good chance that they will walk in those ways and not depart from them when they are older. That is a form of formative discipline. Let's talk about corrective discipline. When we have sinned, God corrects us. When we wander off in rebellion, God pulls us back in corrective discipline. This is always for our good and for God's glory. God is not a is not a vengeful, petty disciplinarian. He strategically, lovingly disciplines us in the way that is best for us and leads to his glory. And so even if he's disciplining us in a painful way, some of you have maybe experienced the discipline of God in a, in a very painful and direct way where you have, you have rebelled in a strong way and yet in love he has pursued you and he's pulled you back and it is, it's been hurtful, it's been humiliating, it's, you thought your world was ending, the weight of God's discipline on you and yet it was all in love. And so you can be comforted by this Romans 8.28 passage that we say so many times. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things includes even when we are running from God, we are shaking our fist at God, and he lovingly disciplines us. It's working together for our good. We're going to spend most of our time today in Hebrews chapter 12, but first we're going to read through what would have been the next passage in Acts that we would have done today. Because it's the perfect springboard to get us into our passage in Hebrews. And so if you've got a Bible with you, you want to open it to Acts chapter 9. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 917. We've met Saul before in Acts. Saul is the young uh, religious superstar who has been overseeing the murder of Christians. He believes he's been doing God a favor by killing Christians in these first few months of the Christian church. God has a very different plan for Saul, though. We're going to read through here how Saul is transformed by God. How does he go from being a, a hater of Christians, a murderer of Christians, a, a hater of Jesus, to, in a very short period of time, a committed Christian who loves Christians, who loves Jesus, and gives his life as what is probably the greatest missionary life the Christian church has ever seen. How does God make that radical 180-degree change in Saul? He does it through discipline, corrective discipline. So let's read this. We'll, we'll come back to it when we get back to Acts. We'll go through it in detail, but just, just be fed by this story. Acts 9, 1 through 22. 
But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's how they were referring to the Christian group at that point, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people, and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed to Jesus in the synagogues, saying that he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And I gotta say, what an amazing story that is, and I look forward to coming back to it in a few weeks. But notice, God chose Saul when Saul was still an enemy of God. He was in route to persecute the church of Jesus to bind them, to bring them to Jerusalem, to torture them, to maybe kill some of them, like some had already been killed. God didn't wait around for Saul to have a change of heart, a change of mind, and, and start wondering, well, maybe this Jesus really is who he says he is. No, God pursued Saul in a very direct, we might say confrontational way. Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus, and he knocked Saul down. He blinded him. For three days, he can't see anything. He eats nothing, drinks nothing. He's the strong man. The, the bully is humiliated. He has to be led by the hand because he can't see. This is, this is painful, direct, humiliating discipline. 
but it is done out of love for Saul. This is God rescuing Saul in this moment of discipline. He is profoundly loving his enemy, doing good to his enemy, even in a way that his enemy receives it first as painful. None of us would want to go through that. But each of us is loved by that same relentless, determined, loving God. Even Jesus even makes clear that Saul is a chosen instrument to carry his name as a missionary around the world and that it's going to be a life that is hard. He says, I'll make... I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. We tend to think that following Jesus will result in all things are good. Marriages are good, our kids are good, our work is good, our retirement is good, all that. And God blesses us in so many ways, but a lot of times he calls us to hard things, hard lives. Saul is being called to a very hard life in this moment. But it's for his good, it's out of love for him, and it will bring great glory to God. But enough about Saul for right now. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. This is on page 1008 if you're looking in one of the Pew Bibles. This is an amazing chapter. We're going to be confronted with a deeply troubling and yet deeply comforting reality. And it is simply this. If God loves you, he will discipline you. Let that sink in. If God loves you, he will discipline you. Hebrews is an interesting book. We're really not sure who wrote it. If someone put a gun to my head and said, pick someone, I'd say Paul. Second place, Barnabas. But unlike most of the New Testament books, the writer is not identified. So as we go through this, I'm going to refer to the writer as the writer. It's an incredible book. Some of the most beloved verses in the New Testament are in it. It can be really challenging, and it can be pretty hard to understand in a few spots. But there's some really good, beautiful stuff in Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 4. We start off this way. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Wait a minute, what are you talking about already? Shedding my blood and resisting sin? That doesn't sound like reality here for us in America. And yet, around the world, there are brothers and sisters in Christ today who are every day facing the reality of torture and even death, shedding of their blood if they will not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Every day, thousands of our brothers and sisters are shedding their blood in order to remain faithful to Christ. But what does the writer say here? He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so he assumes that the people that he's writing to are struggling against sin. They're wrestling, they're fighting against, they're trying to kill their sin. Is that true of us? Is that a good assumption of us here today? Are we, are we fighting against our sin or like 
so often we do, we flirt with our sin instead. And we see how much sin we can get away with and not be embarrassed in public or gossiped about by other Christians or, you know, cast out of the church or feel like God is coming down on us really hard or have our marriages fall apart or our families disintegrate or lose our jobs. Like, we don't want any sin that takes us all the way out of there, but man, there is a lot of sin that we love and that we want to hold on to and we want to flirt with instead of fight against. And yet the writer of Hebrews here is assuming that we as Christians are fighting against our sin. In recent weeks, as we've welcomed new members, I have said to you guys as a congregation, as members have been standing up here, I've said, these new members want to hate their sin and love their Lord more than they do right now. And they're asking you as a congregation to help them, covenanting, covenanting with you to help them hate their sin and love their Lord more. Much of what we're going to go through in this Hebrews passage and in the rest of the next few weeks of this series is not going to make much sense to your heart and your mind unless you understand this calling, this Christian calling to hate your sin and love your Lord more. So let's go on. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He's going to quote from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Now, ladies, don't get too offended here. You're not being left out. He is addressing both men and women, but he's referring to them as sons because he's making a legal argument here. He's using the legal terms of the day. He's talking about adoption into the family of God, becoming children of God, our Father, and not just children, but heirs. And in the culture that he's writing in, it's the sons who are the heirs and the inheritance. He's lumping us all together in there, but he is he's teaching us about and speaking to the whole church men and women. We are all considered sons of God. And what's the point here? That God is our perfect, loving, heavenly Father. That if, if you have been born again in Christ, you are a child of this perfect, loving, heavenly Father. And if He is our perfect, loving, heavenly Father, He will discipline us. Actually, it uses the word chastise there, which means to rebuke or to reprimand severely. And we're like, well, that doesn't sound good at all. That's a strong term. We don't like that. But remember, this is coming from our loving Heavenly Father. He does this to those whom He has claimed as His children, whom He loves as His precious children. Right before that, He tells us to to not re, or to that we shouldn't regard lightly or write off or ignore or even complain about the discipline of the Lord. We we shouldn't get tired of it. That's easy to say. That's hard to do. None of us like to be disciplined or corrected or certainly chastised. But he's making this point here that it's a necessary thing. That it flows out of the very character of God as our loving heavenly Father. To become more clear. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is an interesting argument. He's making the case that that no father would fail to discipline his children. And so if God does not discipline you, then you're not a child of God. If, if, you can, if you can go through life in rebellion against him, and like everything's going great, and you're like, see, there's no God at all, nothing bad is coming on me, there's no discipline, there's no confrontation from this mysterious man in the sky that is strongly pointing to the reality that you are not yet a child of God. Because if you are a child of God, then when you rebel against your father, he will discipline you. Even earthly fathers, the writer tells us, know this. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. So he's coming back to this comparison of earthly fathers and our heavenly father. Fathers are to discipline their children and to do it in a fair, consistent, loving, strong way. And the natural result of that in the world is respect to the father and mother. That's, he's, he's just stating that matter-of-factly, like that's the way the world works. Now, not all parental discipline is good. Not all is loving. Not all is fair. Not all is self-controlled. Not all is done for the good of the child or for the glory of God. And so we can't say that all parental discipline results in respect. In fact, if, if you discipline your children in a harsh an unloving way, and you do it in an unfair way or a self-serving way, they are not going to respect you. Right? If we flip this little equation around, we get a different challenge. So if, if you have a child, picture a child who's being disrespectful, who does not respect their parents, we have to logically take that back and we have to say, well, father has not disciplined that child or at least in a way that is loving and good for the child, with integrity. But the writer of Hebrews here is trying to get us to, to look at the difference between earthly fathers and heavenly fathers, and he talks about time. He says, our earthly fathers, they discipline us temporarily. And so what's the contrast? What's the point? God disciplines us for a much longer period of time. Now, when you're, when you're dead and you're with your, with your Lord in, in glory, there's no need for discipline, formative or corrective. But until you leave this earth, your heavenly Father is active disciplining you. So, parents, you've got a small window of time to discipline your children. When your child's 35, has kids of their own, living on the other side of the country, you can't ground them, right? Doesn't work. Small window of time, and yet... Your heavenly father has from now until whenever he calls you home to be disciplining you. And that's good news. Young people, teens in the room, embrace the discipline of the Lord young. 
You may have 60, 70 years left to your life. And if you walk through those 60 or 70 years saying, I welcome the discipline of the Lord because he's going to shape me, he's going to form me more into the image of Christ, that will set you in a trajectory that is beautiful and fruitful. Older folks, you may feel like, man, I've only got a few years or months or it feels like only a few hours left, but God has not given up on you. Don't coast. God is still loving you, disciplining you, transforming you. The biggest plans for your life he might still have in store. You don't know. So be more conformed to the image of Christ in your last hours, days, years, decades, whatever you have. God is still, until he brings you home, he is disciplining you. He is loving you. It is a hallelujah. Yes. What's the point of this? The verse tells us that the point is that we would share in his holiness. If Jesus has saved you, he hasn't simply guaranteed your spot in heaven and then said, you know, just do whatever you want until then. You are called to live a life of holiness. Your life is to look like more and more to be conformed into the image of Christ. This is the concept of progressive sanctification that you've heard me talk about so many times. We progressively, we grow in our sanctification, our holiness, to become more like Christ. You've heard the phrases, put off, put on, so many times. You put off the old earthly, fleshly life. You put on the new heavenly spiritual life. You become more like Christ. That whole process, that call of holiness, is the call for your life. You're not called to coast and just wait for heaven. You're called to be holy now might say, that sounds like you could be getting a little legalistic there. I have, in fact, recently been accused of being legalistic. Let me give you a definition to help us think biblically about this. Legalism is believing that you can be good enough, you can perform well enough, you can keep the law, the legal code of God, well enough that when you die... You at least beat the curve of everybody else and God accepts you into heaven. That is false. It is a false religion. It is a lie. And our world is full of religious systems built on that basic lie. Do well enough. Be good enough. Be better than others. Keep the law. And God will accept you. That is legalism. If you have heard that from me, I have either done a rotten job of communicating it to you or things have gotten twisted in the hearing. Every Sunday, I try to make clear to you that if that is your, your hope in life, to be good enough, to be pure enough, to be following the law well enough to be accepted by God, then you have no hope because all of us, all of us fail miserably. But the amazing good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that God does not leave us lost in that, but that he himself comes as Jesus the Christ, the God-man, God the Son. And he takes upon himself all of our rebellion and our sin and our shame and our guilt and all that stuff, and he pays the price for us and then offers us a gift of forgiveness, eternal life, of reconciliation, of peace with God. And that That gift is not based on anything that we can do to earn it 
or to pay it off. It is a real gift. That's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We receive that gift offered freely to us. We receive that gift by faith, working itself in repentance. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. To repent means to turn away from being the boss of your own life, ruling your own life, to being the, the king of your own life. And, it means, and faith then means to turn towards Jesus as king and ruler and boss. of your, To trust in him rather than to trust in yourself. And you can't separate those two things. You can't just say, have the faith side without the repentance side. You can't turn to Jesus without turning away from reliance on yourself. When, when you get that, when you, when you come to Jesus through those terms, he adopts you as his son. You become a prince or princess, a child, the king of the universe. I want to talk the last few days about the silly royals over in England and who's actually going to be able to secede the queen and, you know, who's got their titles stripped from and all that stuff. And I think God just kind of laughs at much of that as he looks at his giant family of princes and princesses that he's adding to every day. Let's go to verse 11. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than present. If you've ever gotten a good spanking, you understand that. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, nobody likes discipline. That's obvious. The writer is saying that discipline, though, yields a fruit of righteousness and peace. And we all want righteousness, goodness. We want the good life. We want good relationships. We want peace with each other. We want lives of peace and righteousness. And the way we get those is through the discipline of the Lord. Sure, we all get those when we're in glory, but as long as we're on this earth, the way that peace and righteousness come to us is through that discipline. does make sense if you think about it, especially if you put that word in there that he used, training, being trained in these things. Now, I feel for the writer of Hebrews. I often talk to you guys about the, the pendulum of invitation and challenge, and I feel like the writer of Hebrews is trying to be inviting, and yet he just keeps swinging back to challenge, and I feel that all the time. Like Even on the Sundays where I'm like, this is going to be the most inviting sermon I have ever preached. I get done, and I'm like, man, I still just snuck in a bunch of challenge in there, right? That's my job. Thanks, Sandy. <laughs> I feel for him. And, and these next few verses, I see this really coming out. It's like he just he wants to encourage us, and yet he's got to challenge us, too. So he says in verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so you look at the care and the tenderness in those first few words. I think of like a, a grandma caring for her 
grandchildren and wrapping them up in hugs and maybe they've got a boo-boo and she's caring for them in gentleness. We're told here that there's drooping hands and weak knees. We have to wonder, are we talking about the grandma or the grandkids at that point? But anyway, moving on. The writer is encouraging readers to be careful, to be gentle, to care for the parts that are lame and out of joint. What's he talking about? He's talking about the metaphor of the body throughout the New Testament. We'll see this multiple times in our series. The, the church is referred to as a body. The members of the body are all joined to each other, and when the members are strong and healthy and living at peace with each other and loving and serving each other, the body is strong. And when the members are unhealthy, not living in a healthy way with each other, the body is weak. We will see that multiple times in the next few weeks. Now these, these verses here, the the drooping hands, the strengthening the weak knees, making straight the paths for your feet, the, the helping of the lame and the out of joint to be healed. And then start to ramp up the challenge. Strive for peace with everyone. It's a command to strive for peace with everyone. You might think, well, that is unrealistic, God. And God says, yeah, you're right. <laughs> In Romans 12, 18, we read this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. What grace there is in that first clause, if possible. Because some of you have tried to live at peace with certain people, and you haven't been able to, right? Because it's got to be a two-way street. And so you do all of your part, Paul's saying to the Romans. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You can't make somebody live peaceably with you, but you can Live peaceably towards them. So you're not picking fights with people. You're not lying to people. You're not lying about people. You're not, you're not gossiping. You're not causing division in the body of the church. Remember, that's the metaphor we're dealing with here, both in Romans and in Hebrews. So let's go back to Hebrews 12, 14. The end of the verse, the challenge really ramps up. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Legalism, it sounds, sounds like legalism. Unless you're holy, you don't see the Lord, and yet we must, we must remember the message of the New Testament. How are any of us holy? God gives us, as a gift, Christ's holiness. If you are holy, it is not your own holiness. It is the gifted holiness of Christ, credited to your account. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So the first part is a call really to evangelize, to share the gospel, the message of grace. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. As much as you can, you're sharing the grace of God with others, doing what you can so they will understand it and hopefully embrace it walk away from the grace of God. It's even more challenging that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. We are very easily enslaved to bitterness. When we don't get our way, somebody else gets their way. When somebody hurts us, when somebody says 
nasty things to us or about us, and especially when it comes back to us through others or when we are hurt directly or indirectly, when, when life just beats us down or we think it's not fair that I got that mother or that father or there's all kinds of things that can cause that root of bitterness to start growing inside of us. And unless we forgive those who have harmed us, that bitterness grows and grows. And it will destroy you. And it will destroy our church. It is not just a personal individual thing. Christianity is never just a personal individual thing. We are a body together. And so what happens in one part of the body affects the whole body. If the arm is gangrenous, has gangrene, it's not like the rest of the body can just say, eh, who cares? We're healthy over here. It's all connected. And we see that here in this verse. But that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble by it, many become defiled. When we refuse to reconcile with our brothers and sisters, when we hold on to bitterness and we refuse to forgive, it doesn't just affect us, it affects everybody. Many can be defiled. And if that's not challenging enough, here's how our passage ends. That, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, he's going all the way back to early Genesis here, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So Esau's that poor, foolish guy. I identify with him. Red, hairy, likes to be outside. Esau, he just, he made this foolish decision. He was so hungry that he allowed his sneaky brother to say, you give me your birthright, you give me your claim of inheritance, and I'll give you some of my soup. Well, who would make a deal like that? I mean, really. But he did it. And it was foolish, and it was, it was, it was sinful. It was faithless. And yet what, what the writer of Hebrews is pointing at here is not the, so much the sin of that, but the, the, the aftermath of it. As Esau wanted to repent, wanted to go back and change it, wanted to fix the situation to say, I, I didn't mean it, let's start over. He wanted to repent. And the writer of Hebrew tells us he couldn't. That opportunity was gone. Whether you're young or old, you have a window of opportunity right now for repentance. Maybe you need to go to someone else. Maybe it's somebody in the church. Maybe it's a family member, somebody you work with. And you need to say, I have wronged you in this way. Confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Be reconciled. Maybe it's the, the really big scale. Like you need to come to God himself and say, I have been in rebellion against you. I have been shaking my fist in your face saying, I will rule my life. I will not listen to you. And I, I come in repentance to you now, Lord. I ask your forgiveness. Please forgive me, cleanse me, save me. Whether we're talking about a horizontal repentance or a vertical repentance, that window, that opportunity for repentance is necessarily limited. And you don't know how limited it is. 
You don't know if you have years to be estranged from that person or estranged from your God. You don't know if you have hours, minutes, or seconds. But right now, the window is open. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us, don't be like Esau. Don't wait for that window to close. It was too late. So what's the main point for today? It's a foundational thing that we have to stand on as we go through the rest of this series. Our main point is simply this. God is our loving Heavenly Father. And if you have been born again, you have been adopted into His family as full sons and daughters. Legally, sons, heirs. You are a full child, an heir of the King of the universe. He loves you. And therefore, he disciplines you as a loving Heavenly Father. This is actually one way that you know if you belong to him. If God is bringing conviction on you when you sin and you rebel and you hurt others and you shake your fist at him, it is evidence of his love for you. If you can rebel against God with no tug in your conscience or no brothers or sisters in Christ coming and confronting you. That should scare you. The discipline of God is not pleasant. It's not easy. It's, it's loving. It's good. But it's not something that we're excited for. We don't say, Lord, please, please discipline me. But we need both the formative discipline of our Father like the stake for the tree or the guardrail for the cliff. And we need the corrective discipline from our Father too. When we sin, when we go our foolish ways, we need Him to correct us. Sometimes that's really painful. Think about the story that we opened up with today with Saul getting knocked to the ground and blinded and going hungry and thirsty and being humiliated. It was painful, but oh, so good for so good for us, too, as he writes all those books of the New Testament that we benefit from now. All of this is not just motivated by God's love for us. It's not just flowing out of his love for us. It is essential to his love for us. It's essential. The essence of his love for us is tied to this discipline. He loves us, and he hates our sin because it hurts us and it separates us from others and from him. So he disciplines us out of love for us and hate for our sin to cleanse us of our sin and make us more whole and more holy so that we can be more like him, so that we can walk more closely with him. This is all essential to his love for us. His is a determined love for us. He is our loving Heavenly Father who also happens to be a lifeguard who leaves the safety of the stand and goes off into the surf to rescue his foolish children who strayed away from safety. God gives himself to rescue us. That is a determined, tenacious, persistent love. 
pray today that that encourages your soul, that you walk out of here today knowing that the God of the universe loves you with a self-sacrificial, determined love. That sometimes that love is shown in the discipline of the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you that, that you love us. Thank you that you don't abandon us, you don't leave us to our foolishness and our rebellion, but that you, you pursue us, you correct us when we need it, you, you knock us down and blind us and make us go hungry and thirsty for a while. Lord, there are some, maybe even in this room, who are feeling hungry and thirsty and humiliated and, and hurt, and Lord, I pray that they would come running to you as a child loved by a father. Think about the parable that Jesus told, and I, I, I just imagine tears in his eyes as he talks about that wayward son coming back to the father, begging for mercy and forgiveness, and the father runs to him, envelops in his, in his arms, and says, my son who was dead is now alive. He is back to me. Thank you that you stand with open arms waiting for us to come to our senses. Thank you that you actively discipline us, working in us, what sometimes feels like working against us, but you're working for us, for our good and for your glory. So Lord, as we sing now of your love, would you convince our hearts and our minds of these truths? Would you change our earthly relationships as a result of this? In Jesus' name.